My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm on special assignment for Art Report today. My guest tonight is the artist James Hayward, or Jimmy, as anyone who has engaged in as much as a quick phone call will forever thereafter refer to him. He has that way. In seconds, you feel like old friends. A rapscallion, a raconteur, that teller of tall tales with blazing blue eyes shaded under a trampled cowboy hat. An ever-present shit-eating grin that frequently bursts with laughter into a wide and highly infectious smile. Hayward has exhibited extensively since 1976 with historically significant gallerists including Claire Copley, Rico Mizuno, Roseman Felsen, and Sidney Janis. He's been included in museum exhibitions at MOCA LA, LACMA, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Hirshhorn, and the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, among many others. Through the 90s and 2000s, he exhibited extensively at Modernism in San Francisco and ACE Contemporary Exhibitions in Los Angeles. The artist Mike Kelly curated a solo exhibition of his work in 2005 at the Q Art Foundation in New York and called Hayward one of the few truly important West Coast painters. In 2005, critic and educator and one of my favorite writers, David Hickey, included his work in the seminal exhibition Step Into Liquid at the Ben Maltz Gallery in the Otis College of Art and Design in L.A. More recently, Hayward's work was included in Paul Schimmel's curated show Under the Big Black Sun at MOCA LA in 2011, as well as a solo exhibition at Richard Tell's Fine Art as part of the Getty's renowned 2011 survey Pacific Standard Time. Jimmy, see, even I refer to him like that, is like his work. You're immediately drawn into the seemingly haphazard energy of brush marks plowing through a ridiculously heavy impasto. The colors are often jarring but richly layered. Then upon a little reflection, you wonder about the swagger. The romantic notion of the artist battling his demons alone with just a small canvas shield and a paintbrush sword. But Jimmy's swagger is genuine and born out of the stories he's lived to tell that life experience radiates from his paintings. Jimmy has no shortage of stories and opinions. This makes him either an easy interview if you just sit back, or a very difficult one if you want to get a word in edgewise and try to drive a narrative. Naturally, I took the easy route. We'll join Jimmy now in a midstream consciousness on contemporary painting like the beloved art teacher that he has been at UCLA and continues to be at the Art Center Pasadena, Jimmy can deliver the bitter medicine of a hard truth in a honey-coated teaspoon of advice. This is terrible, but when I go out and look at art today that's incredibly successful, I see all kinds of busy work. I mean, labor that's very visible, like they're showing the collector. I worked hard on this, or I did a lot of work on this. And that kind of is almost the opposite of, I don't want the work to be seen. I don't want the effort to be seen. I, I don't mind making an effort. In fact, I make extreme efforts at times. But I don't want that to be the focal point or the thing you notice or see. Right. I, I want it to be the painting itself, uh, its own kind of... Uh, its own kind of being. 
you 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 work on a thing for a long time, and in a way, a work of art, especially one where it's a lot of repeated layering, it a it becomes like a visual diary of where your life went. It's not words describing where your life went, but it's a, a collection of your energy, your energy built up in layers, and you kind of can imbue an object with that energy to where the object has the presence of built-up energy. Hayward has always described his work as abstract and monochromatic. I wondered how he moved from his early paintings, which were quite flat and would be easily categorized in a minimalist school, to what I now consider an almost Baroque or Mannerist style, in that the paintings are minimal because of their monochromatic color schemes, but they are imbued with a lyricism and an in-the-moment action. The early work until uh, from like 75 to 83 was very flat layered, uh, the flat work, uh, automatic paintings and that. And then uh, mm-hmm. I, I moved to Japan and I had a tiny studio and I started working very quickly. Uh, I actually taking advice I'd given students when I taught. You, when you teach, you have students that are a studio class for four hours twice a week and they come in and they work for their four hours. But almost regularly, they, they have like a six-foot square and $100 worth of paint and four hours time, and they finish at four hours, and they get try to get back to work on it four, a few days later. But there's there's no continuity is what they call it in film. But uh, the, the painting ends up looking like a house that's had a couple of add-ons. It remodels. Uh, right, and, right. And it, it doesn't quite fit together. And I used to challenge my students, you know, it's okay with me if you take the entire week off so long as you spend one whole day, a Saturday, in your studio with one painting working. And I said, my advice is to get twice as much paint and a much smaller canvas. And no one ever took the advice from when I was in Japan. I did. Except <laughs> you did. Myself. You took your own advice like I was a student. Yeah. And it, that's the, uh, the genesis of the really thick impasto paintings I was doing. Jimmy started to talk about his process, which led to this reminiscence about the master Richard Diebenkorn. My whole life, I always painted vertically. I mean, I, it was really fun. I got to ask Richard Diebenkorn once if he always painted vertically, and he said yes. And then he said, you, you, you mean, you mean the, the painting on the wall as opposed to... The on the wall, left. yes. You're, you're painting it on the wall. And, and Diebenkorn said, yes, it's always vertical, but... He says, sometimes I turn them sideways. Is that okay? And I told him that was smart. <laughs> so the drips run, run away from what you're saving. He was, the, he, he was the most humble genius I've ever had the good fortune to have met in my entire life. He was, he was so easy to get along with, easy to talk to. He didn't like to be called Mr. Diebenkorn. Please call me Dick. You know, I uh, have great admiration for that man. I lo- he did so many things. That the art world looks at Gerhard Richter and marvels at all the different bodies of work, from the, the candles to the, the yeah. abstract paintings to the portraits to the landscapes. Or, but but Diebenkorn did all that years before. His still lives are magnificent. His his right. his figurative paintings fantastic. His abstractions are wonderful. He was a had he been a a European or a New York painter. 
I think he would be far more famous. He's famous, but I don't think he still is given his due. He was a great artist, a real hero. I I really appreciate At UCLA one time, when I was in grad school, they they made him be in charge of the teaching assistants. All the faculty had a turn running the TAs for a quarter. And he was so relaxed, and we'd have our meeting, and he'd go, is there any business? And we all go, huh? And, and he'd go, okay, if that's the case, let's, call, let's, let's just call it a day. Get on with it. <laughs> he was so easy because he didn't lecture us or bore us with stupid things. I mean, he was just get on with the work. Hayward's own work tends to be modestly scaled in comparison to much contemporary art today, and I was curious why. Scale is kind of a self-validating thing. Big is like bronze with sculpture. It's uh, yeah. any moron can understand big. You know that's not difficult. I like it when I see a small painting that has real presence, where it's uh, like Manet's last flowers. As Manet was dying, his friends would send him bouquets to the sanitarium, and uh-huh. he would pop off these little sketches that I mean are tiny paintings. But they're in some of the great museums in the world. I've been fortunate enough to Muse d'Orsay in Paris has a couple. I was in Berlin and saw uh, well, this huge white one, big for that, that body of work. But he was like the master of virtuoso nonchalance. It, they're effortless, and yet they're so perfect. Uh, that uh, it impresses me when things can be small and, and, uh, and still have scale, have a... Really yeah, yeah. It, well, it kind of cracks cracks me up that even you know now you know the, even if it's a, a fantastic painting like you just described and it's small, it will be less expensive than a shitty painting that's huge. It's like there's some there's realism. A, there's a lot it's of like, it's like art by the <laughs> Hayward is feeling the effects of a hard scrabble life. Like an old truck, it's not the years; it's the miles. Unable to literally lift a brush after injuries to his rotator cuffs and biceps, Hayward had to take an unwanted hiatus from painting for almost three years. Now, however, he's back with a vengeance and is mining the motherlode vein that had inspired him many years ago. This next bit showcases Jimmy and his wayward logic. We wind through the streets of Rome, where he has an epiphany in the church of Santa Maria della Vittoria, confirming my previous Baroque assessment. We learn about ebony wood strips and hear the echoing influence of Ed Moses and his interest in Japanese gutai painters. Hang on, like all Jimmy's surreptitious stories, this one has a payoff. 20 years ago, uh, I did a, a painting. I was in Rome and... Uh, I would always take uh, cabs to appointments or meetings, but I would always walk home because it's impossible to get lost in Rome because of all the landmarks. You can mm-hmm. find your way home. And uh, it's so neat. I, one day walking home, I saw this church on this main drag, and it was a small church. In my curiosity, I wandered in. It was called Santa Maria... Uh, Santa Maria... And I can't remember the rest of the title. Della something. But inside was, was uh, Bernini's, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa. Yeah. And if, if you went looking for it, it would be astounding. But to stumble upon it accidentally, just like a punch in the face by Muhammad Ali, I mean, wham, knocked out. 
And I ended up doing this painting. Uh, my dear friend, Richard Allen Morris, he paints on anything from paint boxes to cigarette boxes to anything. And he was doing these paintings on found pieces of wood. But, and they'd hang like zips on the wall. And I was at House of Hardwood one day and I saw when they mill an ebony log, they keep trimming it down till they get to the heart, which is pure black. But a lot of the outer portions have little veins of yellow in it here and there. And yeah. they cut those off and uh, they sell them. I was looking at the scrap table and there was all these ebony scraps. They were $13 a pound 20 years ago. I don't know if you could even get them today. Yeah. But I was going to do a second uh, big ecstasy painting because there's two Bernini's in Rome. Santa Maria della Victoria is where the ecstasy of St. Teresa is. Yeah. And then there's yeah. another church in Trastevere that has a second one. It's this church where all the Italians, they love to get married there because it, it's even more ornate and elaborate. Uh, the ecstasy of Beata somebody, I can't remember. But uh, I, I had found a whole bunch of new ebonies. They were giant compared to the original bunch. And I started them, and I put them away 20 years ago. I have a, I'm really bad at finishing things. I, I, I have too many ideas and not enough time. <laughs> so I, 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 I was trying to figure out a new way to paint, and I was building a, got a little performance platform outside where I, uh, Ed Moses years ago turned me on to the Gatai painters, these very mm -hmm. experimental group of Japanese guys, and the one that Ed liked the most was this gentleman that would hang upside down naked over his painting, and his assistant <laughs> would dip his long black hair in the paint and then swing him, and he would swing and swing around and throw paint all over. <laughs> and I thought, I, Ed, Ed just loved it. I, I, I mean, it was pretty impressive. But but I you know I've been working on ripping. Well, that solves it. That solves it. That solves your rotator cuff problem. It does. Well, see, I, I'm not going to use Michael. I'm going to paint with my feet. I, I'm going to do a Peter Boken, and I'm going to do finger painting with my feet. And I've made an apparatus, and I'm getting ready to do this. Except I was. I was kind of shy, you know, I'm like 76 years old, and it's not a pretty sight naked, so I was planning, I bought, I bought body paint, I'm a skinny old, I weigh 137 pounds, <laughs> and I was going to be bouncing around in this spring-loaded little chair I've made out there with this deck right off the ground where the canvas goes, and uh, gosh, I haven't done a single one of these yet, I'm still making the setup. But I've already traded two of them to artist friends. I owe Frank Gard a, a cobalt violet one, and I owe Pam uh, an ultramarine blue one. And uh, so I, I, I will get them done, you know, eventually. But I, it's terrible. When I, I have been working on these evidence now, and well, they're getting a huge amount of my energy. I'm really excited about them. Jimmy, wait, I'm I'm a little confused. Okay, so we got you are confused. You ought to be sitting in my Wait a second. Okay, so we were talking about the these ebony strips. Yeah, that's what I'm mainly where my energy is going right now. Okay, and then and then they're called cutoffs. And I just bought them. I haven't changed them in iota. The only decision so far is you decide what the front is. And they're real rough. You sand them down, you wax them, you gesso the front, and then you paint them a monochrome. 
But the fun thing is, is like the, the, the kick work, the impasto was very much about gesture, but not a dramatic gesture or, uh, it, but not a gesture that had meaning, but kind of a proletarian gesture. Uh, I, where ideally the last mark got lost in the whole field of marks. But now with these new things, there are no marks. They're totally flat. And the emphasis is completely on color and nuancing and changing color. It's like, well, I mean, it's so much fun mixing color. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm lost in, I'm lost in that right now. I, I'm looking forward to people seeing them. No one's seen them so far because of the COVID thing. Now under lockdown, Hayward's purest vision of the artist as recluse chasing his muses is a powerful inspiration. Explaining this in not an exactly non-sequitur sort of way, he weaves in stories about the performance art pioneer Chris Burden. But right now, it's really fun to be an artist because the marketplace has been removed from consideration if you're right. painting right now, you're painting because you love painting. Right. There's no th- there's no thought of making a sale at the present moment. Every gallery I show with is shuttered up. You know, like everything's closed. Yeah. So maybe it's a blessing that everybody's locked up so everybody can try something new. Chris Chris Burden, who was a dear dear friend of mine, uh, I honestly think he's haunting my computer keyboard right now because I'll be <laughs> typing along and all of a sudden capital C B comes up on the on the typing, and when Chris would call me on Sunday morning, he'd go C B here. And, and, uh, it was Chris. We would talk for hours all the time, and, and uh, Chris thought that the best place an artist could be is. That place, like when your mom and dad gave you your first coloring book, right. and you were all excited, but you didn't quite know how it worked. Chris thought that that was the most creative place an artist could inhabit. Is to, you you don't want to know what you're doing, you want to know not know what you're doing, because that's the creative part. Working when you don't know where it's going, and uh, that I miss Chris. He was so much fun. Well, he'd appreciate your he'd appreciate your performance idea. Oh, he would laugh. He we, we were such people never understood our friendship, and it was a long time it went on. And we would be at parties sometimes, and we'd run into each other and just stand and talk and talk. And one night at the big party downtown, these women eventually came up and they go, "Excuse us." Do you mind if we ask what you're talking about? Because <laughs> they, they, they thought we were so different, we would have nothing in common. But right. I mean, the the little the little sports car, what was the the Cooper that it became part of one of Chris's pieces? He drove that up to my farm once, and he said it was the scariest thing he ever did. He says because it was so tiny and low to the ground, you knew the giant trucks had no idea that you were there. You know? <laughs> uh, he was he was such good fun. When, when they had a big fire in Topanga once, he and Nancy lived in my son's loft. Uh, when Sean was there, I made him a loft, and and all their dogs were in the yard. It was like they had four or five dogs and. They sat up there watching TV, watching the fire for days. He he had real long-range plans. Uh, it was so much fun watching him work. Uh, I miss him. 
For almost 40 years, Hayward has operated out of his studio, ranch, slash playground in Moore Park. Not exactly L.A. adjacent, so I was curious how he was able to stay so linked into a scene that was at least, in L.A. traffic terms, a really long ways away. He doesn't exactly answer my question in any direct manner, but it's a fun ramble that actually answers in its own way. For 39 years now. <laughs> I, you know what? It's, I, it, I'm reclusive by nature. I uh, When I was young, I never hung out with artists. I thought artists were boring. I right. mean, I hung out with musicians and writers and actors. And cr- I liked them. Their lives were just more exciting. But what it is, it's like a poet can get irritated and grab his knapsack and leave town. But artists, over time, we have a lot of shit. And moving is not easy. I mean, I can't imagine if I tried to move. It would just be, uh, I'm trying to sort things out right now. There's so many unfinished projects up here. Tony Berlant's wife, Helen Mendez, was visiting one time, and she told me, Jimmy, your farm is an attention deficit wet drain. <laughs> and, and it's the truth. You can close your eyes and spin and point, and you're pointing at an unfinished project. They're everywhere up here. <laughs> it, and do you, I, you call it a farm, but are you growing other things other than pot and your and your paintings? You know, I, I I've never been very good at growing things. That we I grow wildflowers. Actually, I'm beautiful. My poppies are the best they've ever been. My poppy garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like gardening uh, a lot, but I've not grown many things. Just earlier today, I bought eight. There's an heirloom uh, tomato start. Mm. And uh, I love tomatoes and cheese. So does my daughter. So it's a regular on our diet. But uh, I'm going to try. You're right. I I am germinating pot as we speak. I sent off. You know, I used to grow pot. And Paul Schimmel told me one time, he says, Jimmy, I have to tell you this. I was at this very fancy party in New York City. And late in the night, once most of the people have left, there was like a dozen people, and we were on three big sofas around a big glass table in front of a fireplace, and everyone was smoking pot and talking, and everyone's talking about the best pot they had ever smoked. Jimmy, two of the people at the party said the best pot they ever smoked was yours. <laughs> no, what happened was I used to keep copious records, and I was uh, my roommate in college, very master, was in genetic botany, and I knew how to mutate. I knew how to hybridize. And I had been working on stuff for years, and I got so good at it that at a certain point, I lost track of my record keeping. Oh, yeah. And, and when you lit one up, you had no idea where you were going. You know, it was just, it was, it was, and it, I, I, I was so fucked up that I had a, um, a male plant I got from Amsterdam called Metawana with a big warning, not for, uh, not for casual consumption, medical use only. And, I hybridized a number of my females with this giant male marijuana, but one of the females got overpollinated. It was just giant and full of seed. So I gave all these seed, a whole mayonnaise jar full of seed, to a buddy of mine up in uh, uh, Malibu Lake. And a year later, I went up there for a Thanksgiving dinner with a whole bunch of artists. And David, he goes, Jimmy, you remember those seeds you gave me? And I said, yeah. 
He goes, there was so many seeds. He goes, I couldn't plant all that. So I gave it to all my neighbors, and we all grew these gigantic, incredibly stony plants. We all had many more, way more than we could smoke. So we bundled it together, and the local pharmacy is selling it as private reserve number 13. (laughs) I didn't make a nickel on that, but that was my hybrid. After a screed about failed leadership during the COVID crisis, from which I will spare this podcast, Jimmy offers the advice of a lifetime for artists. This thing right now is radically contagious. (laughs) Uh, That's a marijuana cough. I was going to say, that's you cough, right? (laughs) This is really fun. You can do an interview, and you can sip tequila and smoke pot while you talk. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the way artists are supposed to live, you know? Yeah. You, you got to have fun. That was the last words my mother ever said to me. It's so dumb. Sometimes you have no idea how to make conversation. My mother was dying. She was on dialysis. She wanted them to take her off that Alice. She says, please, make them stop. Just let it happen. And I finally left. I couldn't watch anymore. But right at the end, I was trying to make small talk with her, and she was so, you, you had to put your ear to her mouth you know, uh, to even hear her speak. And uh, it's so dumb. I asked my mother, I said, Mom, if you had more time, what would you do? And my mother, her last words to me were, have more fun. The conversation turned to books and a story about his good friend, John Baldessari. Baldessari? John Baldessari, we were talking one time. He's one of my oldest friends. I was asking John, uh, you know, about traveling and this and that and the luxury, uh, the advantages that unlimited means brought to a man. And, And John said, you know, he said, Tahiti's beautiful, Bali's beautiful, all these places are beautiful, but the greatest luxury a man can have is time to read. And uh, he he loved it. He was really sick one time. He had a bone, a uh, 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 um, uh, what do you call it, a muscle uh, uh, at the end, the attachment to a bone in his top of his foot. It became detached, and they can't put that back together because there's so much stress on it. So John had a, a, a leg bone and a, a, a two bones and a connection out of a cadaver put into his leg. The recuperation time was lengthy. And I, I tried to ask what I could do to help. And he goes, Jimmy, I have all these people bringing me food. I have a stack of unread books. He goes, I'm in heaven. I reminded Hayward about Mike Kelly's assessment of him as one of the most important painters on the West Coast, and asked what he thought about his place in the pantheon of California artists. Jimmy was skeptical. I've been blessed with great critics, have loved my work, talked about it, gone on and on. I've just never had a collector base. I don't think I behave appropriately or some such thing. Really? Yeah. I ventured that it was because he didn't fit neatly into the California art historical narrative, one still being written, that puts the Finnish fetish schools, light and space experimentations, and performance expressionism in line, one in front of the other. Jimmy was 
and still is very much part of that Southern California mosaic. I'm friends with all those people, with all the light and space guys, but Crockett and John McCracken was friends, told me late in his life, I went back to New York, they asked me to come back, they said, Jimmy, John considers you to be his best friend, and uh, and that was all because of dialogues. But I was I knew Terrell way back when. The last time I ever spoke with Terrell, he called up to find out where he could get some cheap cutting horses. And I told him there was no such thing. Yeah, you know like Larry Gell? I mean, I've been friends with all those guys forever. Right, but, but you get you get you get you get my point, though, right? That, no, there's no painters in that group. See, I understand completely because all the yeah. minimal finished finished people, they were all sculptors out here. I I don't know another painter, but I still I ran with those guys. Only I painted, and uh, it's that's you know, why that's why I'm saying like you don't have a collector base. As you're saying you don't have a collector base because you didn't like I said you know you're like an outlier from that era, right? Yeah, no, no uh, I, I wasn't joining the right clubs or something, but I, I am good friends with all those people. <laughs> well, I like the West Coast. I was in New York once, and Baldessari uh, and I used to kick around, go to openings, go to bars and stuff, parties. And we were talking, and uh, I asked John if he got any work done in New York, and he goes, not a lick of work ever. He says, I just come back here and wander around. And I had the same experience, even when I had – a space for a bit of time. I couldn't get any work done back there. But some of my friends in New York painters, they saw me kicking around with John, and one night a friend, they said, Jimmy, are you good friends with John Baldessari? And I said, God, he's one of my dearest friends. He's been pals forever. And they said, you know, if you lived in New York, you couldn't do that. And I go, what do you mean? And they said, in New York City, Jimmy, you hang out with your own kind. And I thought, well... <laughs> How fucking small-minded. I, offhand, I know great painters in New York City. I mean, I was friends with Ryman. and I've been to Martin's studio. He's been to mine. Sean Scully's been to my place. Alan Ugalo, who never left New York City, came to my studio out here to visit. So I've had great painter friends, but I would rather be friends with Chris Burden, John Baldessari, and Mike Kelly than yeah. just painters that live nearby. They, they were the best artists, not the best you know, painters. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. It's small-minded to hang out with your own kind. Never small-minded. Jimmy, like the good iconoclast, turned the conversation to revolution. Michael, do you own a gun? Yeah, I know a gun. Good. I'm glad you do. I have a few myself. My daughter, years ago, my eldest daughter, Ashley, I was lamenting the they didn't re- reinstate that ban on automatic weapons. I'm Michael Delgado for Art Report Today. Thanks for listening.